All right, so welcome to Authors on Mission. Today, I'm so excited to have Loretta Breuning on the podcast. Loretta is the founder of the uh, Inner Mammal Institute and the founder of nine books, including Habits of a Happy Brain, which has received over 1,500 reviews on Amazon. She's an expert in brain chemistry and happiness, helping people understand how their brain's wiring influencer, influences their well-being. Her work in neuroscience is both enlightening and accessible, making complex concepts related to relatable to everyone. Dorita, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So, um, so of course, I know that you have published nine books, nine books. People struggle to even write just one book. How on earth were you able to write nine successful books? Oh, I wouldn't say they're all successful, um, <laughs> but they're completed. And I think they're great. Um, and I recommend them all. <laughs> um, uh, so I love to write. And I wrote all my life without managing to get published. And so once I finally had an opportunity to do that, I was very excited. My mind is always on the next book. And um, as soon as I finish one, I think about what else I want to say. And um, I'm not saying that this is something people should do. Everyone has that thing they like, and this is mine. <laughs> so uh, I know that this is a very difficult question. Like almost all the books you would you have written they would have been very close to you. So, but what do you think, which book is your favorite? Which book is very close to your heart and why? Um, the book Status Games is very close to my heart. Um, and the new one I have coming out in January, it's called Why You're Unhappy, Psychology Versus Politics. So these are two books where I get to really focus entirely on things that I've had on my mind for years and have really wanted to express. And, and also um, in a creative way that made it fun to write. Awesome. And um, which, which one among of these is your first book? Is it Habits of a Happy Brain? Well, Habits of a Happy Brain is my first commercially published book. Before mm. that, I did one called I Mammal, um, I Mammal, uh, How to Make Peace with the Animal Urge for Social Power. So that is like that title. That's like everything that I'm doing and everything that I care about. So I put it all in that first book and I self-published it. But when I had trouble selling it and I took some marketing class and someone said, the best marketing is to write another book. And I thought, wow, I love to write another book and I hate marketing. So I wrote another book and that was Habits of a Happy Brain. It had a different title then. Uh, when I finally got a publisher, um, they gave it a new title. But actually um, it didn't, when that, when I had trouble selling that, um, I went on to write another book. So I had three self-published books before um, I stumbled into a commercial publishing deal. Got it. Okay. And um, how did it work out? Like, 
enlighten the audience by explaining the process of how did you g- get the publishing deal? Did you reach out to them, uh, sent out the manuscript to all of the different sure. publishing publishers? Sure. So first I should say that I did that my whole life without success. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was in my 50s, late 50s, I think, mm-hmm. when this finally worked out or 60s. I have to stop and do the math. Um, so I joined a group called the Bay Area Independent Publishers Association. Mm. And I went to their meetings. And at the beginning of the meeting, they would have an opportunity for you to have like 40 seconds, I think, to pitch your stuff and also a table for you to lay out your stuff. And At one point, I was contacted by a literary agent, and I think he must have heard about my stuff from that. And he, I, mm, so you can see how, um, because my book is on, my books are on brain chemistry, I I think he was maybe sort of depressed. (laughs) And a lot of people like take it very personally and are very personally motivated. And so, he was a literary agent and he looked at it and he said, this is great. I can sell this. So I was of course, pleased. I had tried to do that for decades and decades. However, it wasn't as easy as he thought. Um, And he had trouble placing it, but he finally placed it with a little publisher. And Mm. then that little publisher got bought out by Simon and Schuster. Right. So I had a, a couple of, you know, little good looks, but it's not as great as it sounds because this guy lived like 15 minutes away from me and would never meet me in person. So it was quite an awkward situation. And um, he he was not a very, he was not super competent and he was frankly dying of cancer I think a lot of this time and then he finally passed this year I shouldn't laugh but just you know telling you the truth yeah yeah got it okay so um do you also think that just because you have published some of the books like of course by self-publishing Broad, did it also help you um, or help the other literally agents or the publishing companies to get some sort of confidence that no, no, it didn't work out like that. I've gotten nothing, nothing. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that what I am saying is extremely controversial. Yeah. And people don't realize that. People who are not in the field, they think that I am just using better language to say Mm. what, excuse me, what academic neuroscience is already saying. Mm. But people who are in academic neuroscience are like this, like, you cannot say that, that is wrong, that is evil, you cannot say it. So, but the average person who doesn't know this academic politics, they think, wow, this makes so much sense. So I only focus on people who say, wow, this makes so much sense. But anyone who is in um, a, an official organization, um, they're afraid that they will lose my job. They will lose their job if they give me the time of day. So you may be thinking, what is she saying that's so controversial? <laughs> no, like, of course, the last time when we were having a discussion, you also mentioned that 
you were selected as a TEDx speaker, right? And then uh, the, your uh, seat got canceled just because eventually the host or the organization realized that this is a controversial topic and people won't appreciate that, right? Oh, I didn't say that. Um, mm, so, um, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I I might have said that. I'm not challenging you, but um, I may have said that there were a few reasons. And one of the reasons is a little harder to talk about. But um, after the George Floyd thing in the United States, everyone overnight had to change their public appearance. And mm -hmm. frankly, let me say is get rid of white people. And that was like overnight. And, you know, so nobody admits this. Now you see why I get in trouble because I say things that nobody admits. Got it. Okay. So tell me about, so you are being educator for several years. When did you decide, the first time you decide that you want to write your first book? Like, was it all of a sudden or someone reached out okay. to you and asked oh, you to write a book? Okay, this is so funny. So um, I wanted to write even before I became a teacher. Mm. And uh, I was a college professor for 25 years. And as you know, college professors are expected to do academic writing. So I also wrote two academic books that I don't even talk about. They're written under my maiden name, Loretta Graziano. They also, they, they were... Um, Again, I thought they were good, but academic publishing hardly gets any readers. And yeah. they were also using straight language to say things that are not academically approved and sold very few copies because they um, academic books are extremely expensive. So average people are not going to buy them. And um, academic people would think that they didn't fit into one of the preconceived theories because academics is all in silos where there's this theory and all the people who believe in that theory. And then there's this gang or, you know, herd and all the people that believe in that. And no one crosses theories and no one just says things directly. They couch it very indirectly in a lot of theory. So when did I start? So I always wanted to write. I was always, always writing and trying and trying and trying in all different forms. Um, and when I turned 50, I got a letter in the mail that allowed me to take early retirement. Um, mm -hmm. And you only get a tiny percent of your pension if you do it at 50, but you get to have your title for life. Yes, this is for me, because I just didn't like what I was doing. Uh, to explain why in one sentence, I felt that the students were not doing the work, that it was a big fraud, and professors were just passing everyone without doing the work. Mm -hmm. You may know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so then I had time to write, um, but... Um, I didn't want to, uh, you know, I, I wasn't succeeding at getting any attention because what I've learned, what I could tell people who want to write, if you don't fit into a preconceived theory or worldview, like even like if you talk about happiness or depression, there's people with this view and people with this view and people, Definitely. and if you don't fit into any of them, then you don't get plugged into 
the um, word of mouth networks effectively and the, the viral networks as well. <clears throat> so as an aging person, I said, okay, this is my one shot. I'm gonna just say what I think and be direct. And uh, self-publishing had just been invented. So I said, mm -hmm. I'm just gonna say what I think and self-publish it. What year and is this? what came out of that was the first book, I Mammal. Okay, and this is which year? Like, when did you publish your first book? Which year? Uh, the first one, uh, before, uh, apart from the academic books, it was 2011. All right. Okay. Got it. Um, can you talk about your writing routine? Like, do you have a writing routine? Like, are you a morning person? Are you a night? Okay. So can you talk about that? Sure. Yes. I'm um, very systematic about that. And um, I wake up in the morning. I, I joke with my husband that my commute is from the bedroom to my office. <laughs> and... <laughs> And I just start writing right away. Okay. And um, I like to do it, but I really have to, you know, minimize distractions. So I quickly look at my email just to see if there's anything urgent or any fan mail that perks up my chemicals. Um, but I don't deal with anything boring or administrative until after my writing. Now I stop writing by 12 o'clock um, because I have learned that if I keep going, that what I do is terrible. So I feel like we only have so much time uh, that we're fresh. And after that, we're like too close to it. And we're just talking to ourselves. And um, after that, I do my boring administrative and real life stuff. Yeah. Okay. And do you also take breaks in between? Um... Um, yes and no. Um, I really need to keep my circulation going because if I sit too long, I get stiff. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of attention to that now is that it's really unhealthy to sit for too long. Mm -hmm. So um, just frankly, between getting more water and going to the bathroom, um, I have tea and I have a snack with the tea. But I do try to minimize anything other than just a little bit of movement. Then when I finish, then I take mm. my walk. So I do my mm. daily walk, which is very vigorous because I live at the bottom of a steep hill. I live in a, in a valley. And in order to get to the outside world, I have to walk like two, three blocks, like straight uphill. So I do that. But um, in terms of writing routine, I want to tell you a great story. There's yeah. a guy named Anthony Trollope who wrote novels in the late 19, in the late 1800s. And he was even, I think, paid by the word. And he had a full-time job, but he would, I think, wake up like at 5 a.m. and write from five till eight. And he wrote something like 50 books, I think. And he was really doing it for the money. <laughs> it's hard to believe, but his books were um, kind of entertaining. And um, he also wrote a book about how he writes. So mm. it's fascinating. And I, and I learned a lot from him. That's good. Okay. And what about writer's block? Do you ever get writer's block? If yes, then how do you deal with that? Um, so two things. One is 
Uh, you know, there's a term called shitty first draft, right? Yeah. You've heard yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I just write off the top of my head, whatever I'm thinking, and I do it way in advance. I never write to a deadline. And then the next day I look at it the next, or sometimes I, and then I put it away for a week and go back and look at it. So I, I really iterate, you know, like I, I go toward it and then sometimes I start over and I start over and I try not to get too upset about throwing <laughs> it out and starting over. Um, mm. Yeah, just, um, but the, the key to my writing, this is the essential key is always put it away and go back to it. So whether I, I go back to it in a day, a week, a month, which I do all of them. So um, when I go back to it, and I read it. If mm. I have to read a sentence twice, I know that it's no good because the reader will then have to read it twice. And if I read it twice, of course I could figure it out. But if I had to read it twice to figure it out, then we know it's it's not good. So that's the first thing. The second thing, as I when I go back to it, if I think of a new way to say it before I even read it, like this is what should be next. Mm -hmm. then I do that. So if I do that, I end up rewriting. And my husband has heard me say this hundreds of times. It's like, yeah, I rewrote it again, you know, mm -hmm. because when you go back to something and you're in the flow, mm -hmm. whereas when you write it the first time, if you're writing to an outline, that's not the way the reader thinks. The reader thinks like in an effortless flow. So that you want yeah. the book to be an effortless flow. Every time I have to make an effort to understand mm. the next sentence, it's no good. So mm. you really have to give yourself the time to forget what you wrote and go back to it with fresh eyes like a reader and then read it sort of passively like a reader. Okay. So both of them are really great tips. Um, I haven't heard this kind of trick or tip from anyone. So this is good. Um, how do you start working on the book from scratch? Like what's your process? Do you first come up with the title and then the outline and then start working on the chapters or the introduction first? Like what's your initial first few steps in order to complete, like go from nothing to a complete manuscript? Well, first, the initial thing is that burning drive to say something in particular. And usually where the burning drive comes from is like it's something that you're not supposed to say, you know, <laughs> um, but um, or like when I get feedback on the other books and people have misinterpreted something. So I really want to explain something more. Um, the first thing I do is really it's sort of like an outline in a way you'd say part one, part two, part three. Like, yeah. how would I divide these bigger parts into, uh, I mean, this whole idea into chunks, because the reader wants to know where is this going? They have to see the superstructure. One place I learned is like a person has to see where it's going in the first sentence. And because if they have to work to see what's the point they're not going to put in the work. They have to see what the point is before they put in the work to motivate them to put in the work. Got it. And then you start working on the, the 
more granular level of outline or just start working on the the actual manuscript um yeah then i do the more granular outline i don't necessarily adhere to it but usually i adhere to it a lot i may find funnier ways to title the chapters mm. but it's sort of like Michelangelo shaping the clay or, you know, um, yeah. that's a bad analogy. If anybody knows about Michelangelo, I said that's a bad analogy. Um, but um, once I have this whole, here's the, here's the key, especially for nonfiction, maybe, you know what, it, when people write fiction, there's mm -hmm. a word called exposition. Do you know what that is? No. Well, it's like, this character, you have to get their background. So if someone walks into a room, they go to a party and they order a beer and then they say, my name is Loretta Bruning. I, I was a college professor for 25 years. I have two children and I live in Northern California. Like that's boring. Nobody wants to hear exposition. So yeah. first you have to get a person interested and then mm -hmm. give a little tiny bit of exposition, then something more interesting, then another little bit of exposition. So mm -hmm. if you're doing nonfiction writing, you have to do the same thing. How can I grab the interest enough and then give a little bit of exposition to make it scientifically valid? So the way I do that is either with an animal story or mm -hmm. with a human story, I used in the new book, a lot of stories about my grandchildren. So um, then I give a little bit of science uh, to show support for it. And then another little story and then a little, another little more science. Got it. And almost all of your books, they are mostly research driven, like you do a lot of research as well. How do you manage the research like, uh, do you read white papers and then how do you manage them and then how do you use it inside the book? Um, I have a unique situation um, that may not apply to a lot of people. So uh, when I left my job um, in uh, when I took that early retirement, it was around 2006. Yeah. I didn't have a clear plan in life. Mm. Um, I didn't have to um, earn money immediately because my husband was working and we just don't spend a lot of money. And my baby had just left for college. So I started reading evolutionary psychology and I had never knew about it before. It didn't exist when I was in college and I loved it. And I sort of discovered it through nature videos and I read another book and another and like right now all around me, I have like stacks and stacks of these books in addition to all of the ones that I listen to on audio. So that was really my research period. And I discovered this tremendous wealth of research that had been done on monkeys that had been ignored. So most of my books are based on this research that was done in the 80s 70s, 90s, and it's um, different ways of explaining it to different audiences. So I'm not yeah. doing new research, but I'm explaining the model that I developed that takes existing research that so clearly explains our emotions that anyone who reads it would say, oh yeah, that's true. 
they don't even maybe realize that this, and that's what my new book is about, is like, why is this completely ignored in medical school, in therapy, and in academic psychology, and in the media? Got it. When do you realize, or when do you decide that, okay, now the book is completed, at what point you don't do the further editing of the book and you say that, okay, now the book is done. I'm going to move it to the next step. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would say if you've ever seen a picture of somebody running a race and we're at the, they're at the finish line and they pass out and collapse, <laughs> uh, that's how I feel. It's like I can't look at it one more time. Yeah. But uh, it's it's funny, you should really interview my husband about this. So <laughs> I go through it so many times. Mm. And I would say that the first time I go through, I change almost everything. Yeah. And each time I change less. And <laughs> I keep hoping that I'm going to go through it at one time and say, <laughs> oh, yeah, this is all good. I don't need to change anything. But I know that if I go through it again, I'm going to change something. And every time I change something, I even introduce new typos. So mm -hmm. um, it's basically um, I, maybe I, when I get to like, it mostly makes sense. I'm mostly not changing anything. Then I give myself some artificial deadline, like reaching out to journalists mm -hmm. and today reaching out to podcasters yeah. And so that I give myself a way that I have to let go of it. And the way with the new book is um, I scheduled to record the audio. So I did that last week. And once you record the audio, then pretty hard to change anything. <laughs> and do you also take any outside help in getting the book done, like hiring an editor or a proofreader, or you do all of the, all of those things yourselves? Um, so, uh, two things. So one is, um, my husband is quite a grammarian, so I give it to him. I don't end up agreeing with a lot of what he does <laughs> because, um, he, he wrote physics papers most of his life. So his communication style, you could say is very different. <laughs> um, but at least I have, a. A grammarian to talk to. Um, then I have readers who are very supportive in the past few years. So I send it out to them. And this time, because I was writing something that felt like so controversial yeah. that I wanted to send readers like a really early draft just to see if they would die of a heart attack. Like somehow I felt that like somebody would die if I said this. And now I'm quite embarrassed that anybody read such a first draft because I think it was so awful. But you just need that other human being to keep mm. going. And, you know, frankly, when you have another human being who is supportive, then that's good. So I had some people who were, supportive. Um, and then when I look at it, I think, God, how could they have said anything nice about that draft? It was so bad. <laughs> you know? um, now, um, one, once it gets out to the public, 
could possibly have people who will say mean, horrible things. Mm -hmm. And so you have to accept that. And also my husband uh, doesn't say anything supportive, just so you know, he views his role in life as being a grammarian. He puts <laughs> commas in and takes commas out and things like that. But he doesn't say anything supportive <laughs> because <laughs> it's not his style. <laughs> I'm curious, like, how do you engage with your readers? Like, and do you collect their email address? Do you, or if I yes, have then... done something that yeah, is okay. amazing. Yeah, I gave my email address in every single book. Okay. I give my email address on LinkedIn. It's uh, very surprising. I'll give my I give my email address right now. Loretta at innermammalinstitute.org. Awesome. I'll also it's, put it in the podcast bio as well. It's very odd. Um, and S Simon and Schuster went along with this. They have my email in all the books. And the chapter title above my email is Keep in Touch. And so uh, this is very surprising. So how did this work out for me? Uh, uh, if I tell you, I'm afraid like I'm blowing my secret and then, then uh, so, but here's the thing. So I, my message is always how to take responsibility for your feelings. So the only people who write to me are people who want to take responsibility for their feelings, right. which is a nice, very good subset of humanity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and people who don't want to take responsibility for their feelings, I think they don't, they don't write to me. <laughs> I may never, no one ever yeah. hears me say, I feel your pain. Uh, so anyone who wants someone to feel their pain doesn't write to me. So they they reach out to you and then you um, save all of their email addresses and whenever it is required, then you reach out to them over emails? Um, that's how it started in the early days. But slowly, 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 I got more technologically sophisticated. And now I have a website and um, a what, what's it called? Like autoresponder. Um, yeah, MailChimp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't, I don't use MailChimp, but that, okay. what is that? MailChimp Auto, is called a... autoresponder or a email marketing software. Yeah. Uh, newsletter. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. basically, like you. A, li a list serve. Yeah. 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 Customer, mm. customer relation, CRM, CRM customer CRM. relationship manager, Management, something yeah. like that. I don't know. Mm. But when people hear that term, I don't do the quote-unquote drip marketing. That's the one thing, oh, I don't like it. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, what I have is at the at the footer of every page of my website, there's a place where you can give your email and please do, <laughs> and you will um, get a free five-day happy chemical jumpstart, which explains my whole theory, my whole model in five email messages, one a day for five days, you'll understand your power to rewire your happy chemicals. So then that puts their email into a list and I write to my list every week um, in short, funny messages, hopefully. Um, I, I try to keep it upbeat 
and um what was it something else about this um i forgot so how many email list like what's the size of a subscriber in case if you want to share oh it's not big it's 6000 um That's it's, good. it's really hard um because you know you, like i i unsubscribe to things so i guess people um unsubscribe if if um but i do have um a pretty good i think a pretty good open rate and you know people respond to me so i know that they're reading it and i also have twitter facebook linkedin um instagram and a little tiny bit of tiktok and a youtube channel and right. with all of these i have a very very limited participation oh i remember what i was going to say before any time someone writes to me mm-hmm. i reply immediately mm-hmm. um but and i reply in a way that is um offering them more of my resources and for years i kept creating new resources based on the response so mm. for almost any type of interest a person has i could give them the appropriate resource with one link that i have on a short code so mm. i'm like i can so i want to be helpful but i don't want to spend my whole life you know like having <laughs> pen pals right that's good okay and you use your email list to promote your future books as well in that right yes yeah. but but in a very limited way because um as you know people don't want to read a lot of promotion mm. so um i have to keep offering new value and i always have the fear that you know some new thing is going to uh create a bad will that undermines the priors you know it, like this new book like i feel like i'm really going out and but i feel like the list now is people who agree so you have published um traditionally and you have also like you have also done self publishing as well uh you have an experience of both of the different world what do you think according to you are the major differences between traditionally published publishing and then self publishing what are the pros and cons and uh uh why like if now if you'll get a chance would you go with the traditionally publishing or self publishing um well um so first i should say to be frank is i i don't have the chance that i i didn't get an uh an offer for my new book. Mm. Um but there's a couple of things about that. I I didn't put really any effort into it because I know that what I'm saying is so unacceptable to the publishing industry. Mm. And at my age I have no desire to do anything other than say what I think. I I'm not looking for numbers, I'm not looking for money. um mm-hmm. and i'm not looking for approval from the gods of of any particular institution so i'm only interested in in expressing what i see as the truth at this point i might as well say you know people keep wondering you know what is it that i'm saying that so so i'll just say so the core idea 
is that happiness is not our natural default state. Unhappiness is closer to what our brain naturally produces. And to be happy with this brain we have is a very complex skill. Now, I, I know in the Buddhist Hindu, Hindu tradition, this, <clears throat> excuse me, this may sound sort of consistent, but I'm not Buddhist Hindu at all because where they take this is that you should just accept that and not seek, which I don't mm. agree with that at all because that then you never stimulate your dopamine. The bottom line is that um, it, the modern consensus is two things. The Rousseauian view is that happiness is the natural norm. And the only reason we're unhappy is because our society is evil. So all of the academic world is on this bandwagon of our society is evil, and that's why you're unhappy. And then there's the pharmaceutical industry, which is maybe um, over, you know, cell, um, conjoined with the academic world um, is like, um, oh, what's the word? Symbiotic, um, like different belief systems, but it's symbiotic because one provides the money. So the pharma, the pharmaceutical view is unhappiness is a disease and a pill can cure it. So if you put those two things together, you're unhappy because it's society's fault, but take this pill and then you'll be happy. So I don't agree with that. <laughs> and so I'm using very simple logic, simple stories and animal research to show why that's ridiculous. But to say this is violating every single academic thing that's written. And it's in the US, it's like practically illegal to say anything that violates the official medical consensus. Like I'm afraid I'll get sued, you know. Maybe you should edit that. Every time I say <laughs> that, I think I should I shouldn't even say that because um, but I'm not, let me say I am not practicing medicine without an, a license. I am not giving anyone medical advice. I encourage yeah. everyone to take pills if they feel that it helps them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. And I encourage everyone to understand why the long-term impact of these pills is not known. People should know why that is not known. <laughs> uh, I remember that the this, this same sort of debate happened for the COVID vaccines as well. Some people, like most of the people, they were in favor of that, but there were some people like who were completely against it. Um, they were- And those people got canceled. They got canceled from all, all the social yeah, media. Exactly, exactly. They got canceled, like whatever they did in their careers was wiped out. Hmm. And so- Yeah. <laughs> um, and- I'm not saying I'm um, against vaccines or I'm in the favor of, but me and my family never took vaccines like COVID vaccines um, because we were taking um, some sort of Ayurvedic medicines like which happens in India. We take those alternative medicines. Like we can't, we can't say it, it is a medicine. Like we say it, it is herbs that builds immunity 
and that is more long term in terms of uh building your immunity and then keeping you strong and healthy from within uh so we were very much confident about it so uh although sometimes we were kind of uh worried because we had kids in a home but still like we decided to stick with our decision and we glad that we did it so of course uh i know that in your case as well like you there could be very very few people like who would be agree with your points like i have i haven't read your entire book but i have read a few pages of the book and i was completely relating to it like it was kind of you have written the book in a very logical and very easy to understand structure so uh, i would highly highly recommend our readers to um go through loretta's book like they're really fun really engaging you would love it and you will also learn more about you your brain your mind how your psychology works um i have just last two questions for you um before we wrap up the interview like so you mentioned that when you started writing your first book and of course once you retired after that you do it how your books have impacted your personal and professional life if you compare your life before writing books and then after books like now what has changed so i'll tell you something amazing that um uh readers uh, uh listeners might be interested in would be writers the people in my real physical life that i know in person they don't know they're not interested <laughs> like it's weird like it's like it never happened yeah it's so weird um like so um on some level um i would rather interact with readers because they see what i'm excited about and the people mm. i know in my real physical life don't see what is like everything that i care about you know so that's why when everyone um attacks social media i think well people are on it for a reason maybe mm. they're connecting over something that's meaningful to them i know a lot of people aren't so okay <laughs> um but some people are connecting over something that's meaningful to them that they can't connect over with people that they know in their real physical life however over the years um a lot of these readers i've gotten to know and interact with uh regularly and then um visit them and i will be visiting you <laughs> yeah definitely um, like yeah but, yeah yeah but i have to say on the other hand because i spend so much time at my computer and you see look i'm even having you know trouble so i don't want to have like all the people in my life i only know them through a keyboard that's not very healthy so it's really hard to have that balance but on some level we have to not overly resent the people we know in real life who don't care about our writing life because it just seems like and the, you know the point of my book is that like everybody's focused on their own path and we have to just sort of accept that that other people are focused on their path and I'm focused on mine of course what are the top 3 tips or suggestions or feedback you have for 
aspiring writers like who are struggling to write the books for several months or years? I would say first, ignore competition. And <clears throat> and that's really the core of my work when I my first book, I Mammal, is about how competitive mammals are. And so when I first started writing, I was always hearing the critical voice in academics. Academics are very critical of each other. And so anything I would write, I would hear the criticism and I would anticipate the criticism. And if you are excessively focused on criticism, you'll never do anything. So you have to say, what, what is it? What is my unique thing that I want to express? And focus on the joy of expressing your unique idea rather than pleasing or defending. So I think that's you know really important. And then, like I said, iterating. So you do it and then you go back to it and you go back to it and um, really have time on something else that you're focused on something else. Have yeah. fun breaks, you know, really uh, give yourself time for fun so that you clear your mind. Don't be thinking about it all the time. Awesome. Rita, I have also learned a lot of things from you. Uh, of course, you are pro in writing. You have written several books and you write it in such a way that people want to read it. So thank you so much for being on the show today. And um, in case if you want to, can you please share your website and your email address again so that people can go check out your more work in your books? Thank you. Um, my my website is innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. And you can sign up for the free five-day happy chemical jumpstart at the bottom. And my email is loretta at innermammalinstitute.org. And I give you that for what I encourage is I, I'd like to hear um, uh, what you think about the books and the theory and how you've applied it in your own life. And how I, what I really love to hear is how you explain it to other people, because that's really a challenge. How do you explain this to someone else? Perfect. Thank you so much, Loretta, for your time. It was fun talking to you. And um, yeah, thank you so much, listeners, for hopping in. Um, we'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.